Well, we're back. Welcome to another week in This Week in Government Enforcement. I'm Jerome Thomas, joined, as always, by Tom Firestone. Um, we took last week off, but we're ready to jump right back in. Tom's going to start us out talking about um, the recent report uh, for the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan, specifically relating to um, uh, corruption in Afghanistan, which will no doubt shed some light on uh, the, the events of the past seven to 10 days in Afghanistan. Um, and then I will uh, take us home today talking about a recent SEC case filed last week on shadow insider trading. Um, it, it got Tom all worked up before we were going on. So hopefully it'll get you guys worked up too. Um, but I guess without further ado, Tom, why don't you kick us off? Thanks a lot, Jerome. Looking forward to continuing our discussion about insider trading. Um, as Jerome said, I wanted to talk about the report of the Special Investigate, Special Inspector General for uh, Afghan Reconstruction, also known as SIGAR, and what he had to say about corruption in Afghanistan. Now, we've spoken before about the connection between national security and anti-corruption, and nothing sheds a light on that, like the recent events in Afghanistan, the Taliban takeover has caused a lot of people to look at the role of corruption in facilitating that takeover and the collapse of the preceding government. And what I think that this, the events in Afghanistan, which have drawn so much attention in the country because they're so dramatic and so important, will again force this administration to look at the connection between rule of law, anti-corruption, and national security. So I think it's worth considering what the lessons learned from Afghanistan are, as they will probably inform and administration policy going forward, which of course has implications for companies operating in emerging markets. Um, just a couple words on this. The SIGAR, um, Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, was appointed by Act of Congress in 2008. Um, the position was created in 2008. The IG is um, somebody named John Sopko, who was a federal prosecutor with DOJ for many years, focused on organized crime anti-corruption, also worked as a defense lawyer at a big law firm, focusing on white collar defense. So he's somebody who's very focused on these issues and comes at them from the same angle Jerome and I do and our listeners do, which is really a corporate enforcement perspective. He has been banging the drum on corruption in Afghanistan for years, multiple reports over the years. Last week, he released a, an additional report, which is called not um, lessons learned, but what we need to learn, implying that the lessons have not yet been learned. And he devotes a significant part of that report to corruption. I wanted to talk about that, but before getting into his most recent report, I wanted to talk about some of the previous reports and what he said previously about corruption in Afghanistan and why it was a threat to national security. He issued a major report on 2016 on this, and then in a statement he made in 2020, he again focused on corruption. And he said in this, um, in this 2020 statement that the international donor community should con condition future assistance to Afghanistan on the implementation of effective anti-corruption measures. And he identified several of those, which are the following. Addressing the backlog of corruption cases, including a fuel price fixing case that had been hanging around for six years, the arrest, trial, and imprisonment of powerful individuals engaged in corruption, significant output from anti-corruption courts, recovery of stolen assets, proper resourcing of anti-corruption institutions, and greater transparency in, con in co uh, contracting, public procurement, and legal proceedings. 
Now, it's hard to argue with any of that. It all those sounds well and good, very logical sorts of recommendations to make to a foreign government combating corruption. The only problem is that these are absolutely Western U.S. indicia of success in battling corruption in the court system, which it turns out, according to the CIGAR, really had very little relevance to Afghanistan when we look at what happened. In his final report that was issued last week, the report, I don't know if it's the final report, the report entitled What We Need to Learn that was issued last week, he again comes back to the role of corruption um, in, the, uh, in the security effort in Afghanistan, but he comes at it now from a completely different perspective than in his previous reports. And he basically says that we misjudged it and we tried to shove a Western legal system down the throats of a traditional society it didn't take, in fact, it made the situation worse. And that's something we need to be sensitive to on a going forward basis. Some of the, just quoting from the, um, the most, the what we need to learn report. Um, he said that, says that the fact that Afghanistan lacked formalized governance institutions in the Western tradition did not mean that there was ample space for the outside introduction and cultivation of those institutions. So just because we don't have, I don't know, trial by jury, grand jury, whatever, doesn't mean that it's appropriate to introduce them. The absence of Western institutions doesn't mean that they should be introduced. Um, he then goes on to um, he then goes on to talk about the rush to privatize assets. Another thing that we love to encourage foreign governments to do. The rush to privatize assets and industries without mitigating the undue influence of established patronage, patronage networks made elite capture of assets almost inevitable, exactly what happened in the former Soviet Union. He then goes on to talk about the specific rule of law assistance programs that we sponsored. Um, he mentions the fact that between 2003 and 2015, the U.S. government spent more than $1 billion on rule of law programming in Afghanistan approximately 90% of that funding going toward the development of a formal legal system. He concludes, however, that system was foreign to most Afghans who favored informal community level traditional dispute resolution mechanisms. Such informal justice systems operate by rules familiar to most Afghans and the system is far more efficient. He talks about how the laws that emerged from the post-Taliban state, state building effort were drafted by foreign advisors with only limited involvement of their Afghan counterparts. The wide-ranging legal concepts reflected in those laws sometimes conflicted with local Afghan traditions. Inciting, inviting criticism, such Western imports were insensitive to local norms, specifically the tenets of Sharia, and such, criti says, such criticism emanated not just from reclusive clerics in Afghanistan's interlands, but also from parliamentarians serving in Kabul. Western advisors' insufficient grasp of Sharia prevented them from effectively responding to objections to the international community's programs. The United States misjudged what would, uh, what would constitute an acceptable justice system from the perspective of many Afghans, which ultimately created an opportunity for the Taliban to exert influence at the local level. The Taliban competed for popular support by providing a semblance of security and justice via their own version of traditional dispute resolution. While the outcomes of the Taliban-run processes may not have always delivered what the United States would consider to be just and equitable outcomes, the path to those outcomes was much quicker and more familiar to many Afghans than the US-sponsored system. So why didn't we just accept the local system? As he points out, 
senior US policymakers were unable to accept the implications of supporting traditional dispute resolution. Um, would, this would have put the United States dangerously close to endorsing principles that were politically untenable. So I think we all know what his report about the Taliban justice system. And then he says, basically, at the end, his real conclusion is U.S. officials chose to pursue a vision for Afghanistan's justice system that reflected American values and preferences without sufficient regard for what was practical or possible. This is just a fascinating encapsulation of the problem that we always face in trying to promote the rule of law overseas. We go in, we want to support Western style institutions. A lot of times they don't take because they're unfamiliar to the local population. They don't fit the traditional social structure. We can't support the traditional social structure because in many cases it may be, as he puts it, simply untenable to us. The um, unacceptable to us, some of the punishments, some of the divisions based on uh, gender are simply unacceptable to um, a Western liberal uh, regime such as ours. So what do we do? The report doesn't really have an answer to this question. It poses the dilemma very clear and it makes clear that the traditional efforts to promote um, uh, Western style institutions are unlikely to be um, successful. And I just want to comment on having worked on rule of law programs in Russia for many years, I saw the same problem there and specifically the excessive focus on numbers of prosecutions. In my experience, Washington, the funders always want quantitative indicators of success in the rule of law. One of those that is used is criminal prosecutions. What, in my experience, what happens is when we force or encourage a country, foreign government, to pursue criminal prosecutions, we get prosecutions, but they may not be prosecutions that comport with legal standards, rule of law. They're often brought for political purposes against enemies of the regime, which according to another study of Afghanistan is exactly what happened there. So we have to be extremely careful not to do that. We also have to tread carefully when we try to endorse, um, when we try to work within the local system. But this to my mind does not mean that we simply throw up our hands and say, oh, we can't promote the law, law overseas. Um, I think there is an appropriate middle ground in which we can work with local actors who understand the system, but want to try to make that system, the existing system, which is acceptable to local, um, local population, more transparent, more fair. I was speaking yesterday to one of our former associates who's from Afghanistan, who studied this situation very closely, and his um, recommendation, which I thought was very wise, we need to be just more modest in our aims. And for example, he pointed out that the traditional dispute resolution system in Afghanistan involves village elders resolving disputes. One thing we could have done was to would have been to simply create a system of precedent, a system for recording their decisions so that it's not reinvented each time, so that it's not as arbitrary. Um, simply recording decisions were made by traditional dispute resolvers could be a way of making the system more transparent, more predictable, less arbitrary without violating the traditional norms or trying to shove down the throats of the local population, something that, um, that we expect from Western legal institutions. I think that's really the key in these situations for to get local, ex to get rule of law advisors who have experience and knowledge of the local system, language skills are obviously a huge plus, who immerse themselves in the local system and then look for opportunities within that local system to make it more transparent. Again, drawing on my own experience in the former Soviet Union, I cannot tell you how many programs I saw where US prosecutors would be parachuted in 
and give lectures to local prosecutors on RICO, plea bargaining, 5K letters, wiretaps, things like that that had no relevance to the local system. And it was often a waste of money or sometimes even worse, it's imparting tools that will be misused because they're not used against the appropriate legal backdrop. So this is not something we're going to resolve right now, but this report I think is really just uh, poses a very important question. And I hope will force a very meaningful debate and discussion about this issue because it is an ambition of the Biden administration to promote the rule of law around the world. How we go about that is a very important question. I hope that this report um, forces thinking to advance on this subject. Yeah, yeah, you know, Tom, I, I can't help but think, right, that like, you know, if you compare India and Pakistan and Afghanistan, um, you know, you know, there, there, there are obviously problems in every judicial system. India and Pakistan are no are, are, are no exception to that. But but there is there, there is a system and, and, and there is there are well, certainly India more Western than Pakistan, but there are elements of Western style judicial systems in both jurisdictions, obviously, um, with a with a heavy cultural, local cultural and, 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 uh, and ethnic overlay. But I think the issue is, is that there is a history in, in, in India and Pakistan, you know, back on back going back hundreds of years with the, the British, where the, those foundations were laid. And so so there was it was in the fabric of society to have some level of what I would call common law, legal jurisprudence um, and, and systems governing. Whereas in Afghanistan, um, I, with the exception of, a, you know, a, you know, a, maybe a decade of, 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 of Soviet sponsored government, it's largely been a self-ruled uh, country. You know, the, the Western influence has failed miserably in Afghanistan. And as a result, there are no roots there to go in and say, all right, let's have a district court, a court of appeals and a Supreme Court where there is independence of the judiciary. That just that's not going to work. Nor should we try to make it work. Yeah. We try to work. We have to take these systems as they are. That doesn't mean that we have to endorse justice in which women get second class justice, nor does it mean we have to endorse a system in which you know, of corporal punishment or um, limbs being cut off as a punishment, not at all. But I do think we have to work within the system and roll up our shoes and get into the system, look for opportunities within the system to make it more transparent um, and separate the, the unacceptable elements from the system from those which provide an opportunity rather than go to one extreme or the other of just buying in wholesale to a um, to a system which is unacceptable or trying to shove our system down the throats of foreign populations. And I think that this is, to me, it's just a clarion call for real local regional expertise to do this and not assume that somebody, just because they've been a successful judge in the United States, a successful prosecutor in the United States, is going to be effective at providing technical assistance to the rule of law overseas. I think that the key to that is as much legal skill, is as much local knowledge as it is general legal skill. Fascinating stuff, Tom. So is that over to you for no less fascinating stuff? Yeah, so 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 hold on to your seat, Tom. I'm talking about a case, SEC versus uh, Panuan. It's a shadow trading action. Let me give you the facts, and then we'll get into what shadow trading is, because I think many of you, your jaws might hit the ground when you find out what the SEC is alleging. So on August 17th, the SEC charged Matthew Panuat, a former head of business development of 
Medivation, which is an oncology-focused biopharmaceutical company, with insider trading in advance of that company's announcement that it would be acquired by Pfizer. Um, the case is unique for one gigantic reason. The defendant did not buy or sell the securities of either Medivation or Pfizer. What? Instead, short-term, out-of-the-money stock options in another company, Insight Corporation, totally unrelated to Pfizer and Medivation, um, days before the deal was publicly announced, the, the deal being that Pfizer would acquire Medivation at a significant premium. So the little bit of the details here. So Panuat learned of the acquisition on August 18th, 2016. According to the SEC, within minutes of learning of this, he purchased out of the money short-term stock options at Insight. Um, according to the SEC, Panuat believed the value of Insight would materially increase with the Medivation acquisition announcement because they were viewed in the industry, he had connections with investment bankers. Uh, he had been working with investment bankers on this deal, according to the SEC, but he also had a history in investment banking. You know, he viewed the two companies as being peers. So he had a hunch that, well, with the announcement of this deal, the, 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 the stock of, uh, of Insight would also go up. And in fact, it did when the, the, the deal was announced, but that we'll get to that later. Um, so the SEC knew or alleged that Panuat knew that investment bankers had cited Insight as a comparable company in discussions with Medivation, and he anticipated that the acquisition of Medivation would increase uh, Insight's stock price. And on August 22, 2016, Medivation publicly announced it would be acquired by Pfizer. Over the course of August 22nd's trading day, Medivation's share price rose by about 20%. The same day, the stock price of Insight rose by approximately 8%, according to the SEC, on news of Medivation's acquisition. As a result, the value of Panuat's Insight stock options doubled, roughly doubled. Um, and then as a result of this trading ahead of the announcement, Panuat was able to make profits of roughly $107,000. So we got to just stop right here, right? And so when we talk about insider trading, there are two theories. There's classical insider trading and there's misappropriation uh, theory-based insider trading. Let's put tip or tippy to one side because it's not really going to apply here. Um, so this case is kind of neither goose nor gander. Um, it, it's a practice um, that uh, folks have been referring to over the past couple of years as shadow trading, which is where uh, company insiders use information they get through their employment to trade in securities of unrelated companies. And that's called shadow trading. It's a fairly untested theory based on some rough and preliminary research I've done. I can see only possibly one case that this has ever been or, 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 or alleged. So it's not really a, uh, a, 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 a well-worn or well-established theory. Certainly a single case isn't going to be something that be, can be considered dispositive that it's a, a well-settled theory. But anyway, according, um, or so what's so novel about this is that usually insider trading by company insiders in the context of merger acquisition activity, which is exactly what this is, guys. Like, like insider trading cases, this is the bread and butter of insider trading cases. Company insider learns of the acquisition uh, of either their company or another company and goes out and buys stock in one of those, either the buying company or the, the selling company based out at, on that information. Um, that's 
most of what you see in insider trading cases. Um, however, what we don't typically see in insider trading is where a company insider trades in the stock of an unrelated third company, and that trading is the basis of insider trading. Um, the SEC doesn't really articulate what its theory is, but based on sort of pulling apart some of the allegations, I think they're using the misappropriation theory here. So for starters, let's talk about the classic theory. Courts have typically relied on the classical theory of insider trading um, to apply where a corporate insider uses insider information derived, material insider information derived from his or her corporate position to trade in his own corporation stock. So it would be um, drawing on the common law, um, fraudulent non-disclosure theory. The classical theory says, look, I, I, I have information that I got by virtue of my position as a corporate insider by me not disclosing that information to you on the other side of the transaction. You are also a shareholder of that company. I have engaged in a fraudulent device or, or fraud. So that is the, 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 the classic theory of insider trading. Um, but it typically only applies historically in trading in the, the stock of the company um, where you are the insider. Under the misappropriation theory, which is made famous by the O'Hagan case, a person who uses insider information to trade uh, uh, in securities has, let me take that back. The misappropriation theory is premised upon where somebody, and it's typically a corporate outsider. Um, O'Hagan was a, a, a lawyer at the law firm advising one of the two companies involved in, a, in, a, in an acquisition, where an outsider typically uses information he or she gets from usually their employer, from a source of the information, owes a duty to keep that information to themselves and not use it for their personal gain. And in fact, breaches that duty to keep the information confidential and not use it, and thereby trades in the securities. But what you typically see though in misappropriation cases is it's that somebody gets information through a, um, through, through, through a, uh, a, a deal that they're, that, 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 that they know about, for example, in O'Hagan's case, as a, law, a lawyer at a law firm advising the company that's involved in the transaction, uses that information in breach of the duty they owe to the law firm, right? The source of the information, and then goes and trades. What we have here is something different, which is, um, as far as I can tell, Panuat owed no duty at all to Insight. And, and that's really what this is going to come down to is the, the, the lawyers for Panyu are going to say, where is the duty that he owes to, to uh, the lawyers or to, or to Insight? What the SEC is going to say is, well, not so fast. The, the, the misappropriation theory says that when you have a duty, when you get information and you have a duty to not use it for your own personal purposes, and you use that duty or you use that information in breach of that duty for, for stock trading, that is within the four corners of the misappropriation theory. That's really no different than what O'Hagan did. Now, I would argue it is because in O'Hagan, O'Hagan was a lawyer at the law firm that was advising one of the, the two companies involved in the transaction. Here, what, uh, what Penuot is doing is basically using information that he's gotten from his position at the company and going out and engaging in market transactions where he has no idea it's a sure thing or not. 
it's a big gamble. He, he might have lost on this, right? And, and he has no insight into what is going to happen with Insight, whether Insight is going to be purchased, whether there are going to be any offers for Insight. And really what the, what the SEC is sort of moving here, one would say, is, is an informational parity regime. And we all know from securities uh, regulation in law school that the securities laws do not require parity of information. What they require for there to be a liability is, is using information in breach of a duty um, owed to the source of that information, misappropriation theory, or some other fraud affected on, uh, on the company or your employer in the classical case. Um, but what the SEC would say, well, hold, hold, hold on. Um, and they actually said it here. They said, look, um, he had a duty to keep this information confidential and not use it for securities trading purposes. For example, Panuat agreed at the outset of his employment that he would keep information he learned during his employment confidential and not make use of such information except for the benefit of Medivation. Panuat also signed uh, Medivation's insider trading policy, which prohibited employees from personally profiting from material non-public information concerning Medivation by trading in Medivation securities or the securities of another publicly traded company. The policy said, quote, during the course of your employment with the company, you may receive important information that is not yet publicly disseminated about the company. Because your access to information, you may be in a position to profit financially by buying or selling or in some other way dealing in the company's securities or the securities of another publicly traded company, including all significant collaborators, customers, partners, suppliers, competitors of the company. And so what you'll see is the SEC took a very broad prohibition in the insider trading policy, imposed a duty on Panuat because of that prohibition, and then said, oh, by the way, it's not just the prohibition. You were getting information about this deal up until the day of the deal from investment bankers that said this was confidential. And so you just, we're not making up that this information was confidential. The information you got from the investment bankers was marked as confidential. So it should be no surprise that this is the type of information that falls squarely within the four corners of the insider trading policy. And that as a result, you can't use this for any purpose. Um, now, I, I think there's a slippery slope here, right? Because anybody who does anything in the economy learns of information. And they learn of information oftentimes through where they work or through relationships that they have with people. And oftentimes people will buy or sell stock, um, not in breach of any duty owed, but because they have learned things over time about the directional uh, uh, force of a particular industry or about the prospects of a, a particular subsector of an industry. Um, and what, if you take this to its logical end, one might say what the SEC is doing is you can't use any information you get through your employment if you are sworn to secrecy that you can only use the information you get in your employment for the company's benefit. That, 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 that is all going to trip the insider trading line. I, I, I think the SEC would respond, that's bull. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying here is that in these particular facts, he got this information through an M&A transaction where it was marked confidential. He knew darn well this was confidential. It's the type of information that he knew he couldn't use to buy or sell the stock of either of the two companies involved in the transaction. So he tried to get tricky. 
He tried to get cute and he went out and bought the stock of a peer company that he knew damn well was going to raise in price because he knew what the investment banking community would thought about this company. He knew that they were cited as a peer and he had a hunch the price would go up. And so as a result, he took information from the company that he was not allowed to use and used it for his own personal benefit for securities trading purposes. And your honor, that falls squarely within the misappropriation theory under O'Hagan. Um, I, I have to object. A lot of pushback they're going to get on this. I don't understand how he's not an insider of the company that he traded in. Maybe he breached a duty to his own employer, but that doesn't mean that there's insider trading with respect. I mean, insider trading means you're an insider in the company that you're trading. Not yeah. what you call what they would say. Oh, he got cute. He didn't end run because he didn't trade in the two companies that were involved in the deal. That's not cute. That's not that's complying with the yes. laws. That's doing something that he's allowed to do under the law and not doing something that he's not allowed to do. How is that cute? That's just compliance. Yeah, it, it's it, it is a um, it, it, it is a stretch of of gargantuan proportions to apply uh, the insider trading laws to this fact pattern. Um, the, 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 what I think is happening here is that the SEC is responding to a little bit of populist pressure here, um, because this is something that people have been talking about for a while, which is there are people who have access to all types of information before the rest of the economy gets information. And what they do is they're either well-advised enough or they're smart enough to know where the lines are drawn on the law but they are still using information that only they get access to and they have access to by virtue of their corporate status. And they're then going out and getting rich buying, uh, buying other companies' stock based on information they're getting that if you ask most people, including most in-house compliance folks or even lawyers, they would say, well, technically they shouldn't be doing that under the insider trading policy. Um, and so as a result, I think there, there's a populist tilt to this case um, when I first read it, I said, oh, yeah, they, they, they're clearly targeting what people have been complaining about for a few years, which is corporate in, insider abuses that are sort of technically outside the scope of the law, but still have a flavor of insider trading. Right. But as you pointed out, the, the insider trading laws don't purport to achieve parity of information. And that's what this is saying. And if we go to a parity of information model, then we're going to change the markets and time. Yeah, yeah. Look, look, I, 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 look, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the SEC here, Tom. And I keep going back to Charles O'Hagan, right? I'm um, saying, well, O'Hagan didn't owe a duty to, he wasn't an insider at all. He was an employee, he was a, a law firm lawyer, and he didn't owe a duty um, uh, to the company whose stock he purchased. He owed a duty to his law firm. And so he was an outsider as well. But what he did is he took information from a source, his law firm, that he owed a duty of confidence to. And he then went out and bought the stock of, 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 of a company that he owed no duty to. I think the reality is, well, that, that was all part of, a, of an M&A transaction where everyone would, would, would say, well, that's all sort of all confidential information and is typically where insider trading laws or cases arise. So you can see it extending in that case. This is something entirely different. 
um, where, where like there, there is no privity of transaction, if you will, between Pennywatt and Insight. Insight is a totally unrelated corporation that he essentially bought on a hunch. I mean, that's it might have been a good hunch, and it might have been based on what people were saying, but it was a hunch. Yeah, to me, it seems the difference between him and O'Hagan is that O'Hagan has this inside knowledge because he's working on that very deal. Yeah. He's got, he's not taking a risk because he's got the information in real time through his insider status. This guy doesn't know what's going to happen with Insight. He has no control over what's going to happen with Insight. He only knows his own deal. And how that deal affects the stock price of Insight is a, you know, it's a question. And so to me, that difference, that separation between him and Insight, which didn't pay, didn't exist in O'Hagan, makes this a different animal. Yeah, you know, you know, Tom, what I what I would love to do is give the SEC lawyers on this case some truth serum and say, how how are these facts different than normal everyday securities trading based on what everybody learns in the course of working in the economy? Tell me what is different about. And I think they would say because he got this as a part of an M&A transaction. And those are typically sacrosanct transactions for insider trading purposes. And what we are doing is merely extending that that prohibition that nobody would, would contest one step further to a peer company that he had a very good reason would move in parallel. Again, it's a huge leap. It's a huge inferential leap and one that I don't think or I don't know is going to be supported by the law. Um, but I think that's what they would say. And I think that's probably where they would draw the line. But still, it's a, a there are a lot of questions raised by this case that I think we're going to have to follow closely. I, I agree. I mean, under the truth serum, they would say what makes this different is that he obtained the information and used it in breach of an explicit duty that he owed yeah. his employer which is different from, you know, you or I just learning things, yeah. you know, generally and trading on it. But to me, sure, that makes it different than honest research, but that makes it a breach of duty to your employer. It does not insider trading make. That seems to me an important distinction which should be preserved. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see where this thing lands. Great discussion today, Tom. Thanks for, uh, Thanks for engaging with me. And then <laughs> always interesting in Afghanistan, fascinating stuff. Um, all right, everyone, we hope you enjoyed it. Um, we got worked up today, but it was fun. And so we'll, uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Again, keep the comments, feedback coming. We'd love to hear from you guys until next week. 